supporting the mission of the Warren Center. Hi, Warren. It's Warren. I just looked at it. In conjunction with the mission of the Apologetic Center, Dr. Stone is with us today. And uh, Thomas B. Warren, in his book, Have Atheists Proved There Is No God, <clears throat> affirms that the world is the ideal place for the purpose God had in creating it, i.e., to provide man with the ideal environment for soul-making. He insightfully elaborates a crucial point concerning all of this in the following excerpt from his book. Dr. Warren said, two extreme situations would have to be avoided. A situation in which man lived directly in the presence of God, and a situation in which he did not have adequate evidence of God's existence. The environment which man needed would have to be one in which man would be at an epistemic distance, quote unquote, from God, yet not so far away as to preclude his freely making his own decision to come to God in love and submission. His environment must be one which makes it possible for man to consider the world without immediately and automatically deducing the existence of God from that consideration, yet at the same time, an environment from which it is possible to deduce correctly that God does exist. For one man, the world may veil God. For another man, it may reveal God. This is as it must be if man is to be truly free. This epistemic distance, not directly in the presence of God, but not apart from him where we cannot know him, is one of the things that makes our existence on earth so special. There are many other things that make earth special, and that is the highlight of this presentation this afternoon, the special nature of earth, also its correlation to the biblical record of Genesis chapter 1 and the narrative of God's creation of it. And so... I think most of you are here this morning when I introduced Dr. Stone. He made a correction. I appreciate the, uh, the correction. He, is the, uh, he was the principal investigator or co-investigator for science experiments on eight space missions and was mission scientist on two of the space shuttle missions. And so many of these observations uh, that he has made and participated in came to bear personally and directly on on Dr. Stone's faith, and we're looking forward to uh, his sharing of some of these observations in the next hour. Dr. Stone? on the parking lot of the football stadium. And it was usually 
98 to 100 degrees with matching humidity. I heard that they were getting together an ROTC glee club and that they were going to practice during drill. So I signed up for the glee club. And I remember one particular, and, and we had some really good people in there, and we got invited a number of places, and one of the places we went was to a, some kind of political rally, and they had this big spread of food, and they fed us before we performed. And it was difficult to breathe, much less sing. So here we are. <laughs> Your job is to stay awake, and I can see your eyes. And my job is to breathe. Let me ask you a question. What was the motivation behind the space program, you think? Why do we go into space? Not church, you can... To beat the Russians. There was a political motivation. But there were a lot of professors and academians that were very excited about going into space. They had a different motivation. What do you think that was? To prove there was no God. To prove? That there was no God? Well, sort of. They. To answer an age old question, are we alone in the universe? And so we went to find life. And of course, an implication of that, if life is common, it didn't get here but by design. There were people that staked their careers on there being life on Mars, for example. They were quite sure that they would find life in the solar system somewhere. Because you see, they believe that if you, if you assemble all of the necessary uh, elements and you add water and energy, it's kind of like baking a cake. <clears throat> you put all the ingredients together and you add heat, and a cake comes out. You put all the necessary ingredients together, carbon, oxygen, so forth, you add water and energy, and you get life. And that's what they expected. So I, I want you to think about a couple of things as we go through. We're going to tour our solar system first to give you a feel for what the other planets are like, so that you can appreciate the difference between them and the Earth. And as we go through this tour, I want you to think about whether or not you'd like to be on one of these planets. We'll see if we find life and how we're doing. This is an artist's rendition of our solar system. And you can see it's kind of divided into two parts. There's the uh, inner planets, the so-called terrestrial planets. They are rocky bodies. You can stand on the surface. There's the asteroid belt. And then outside of the asteroid belt, you have the outer planets, which is, are by and large uh, big balls of gas. So let's begin with the innermost planet, Mercury. Mercury is close to the sun. It's uh, about 33 million miles from the sun. Now, Earth is uh, 93 million miles. So it's about a third the distance that Earth is from the Sun. It, uh, a year on Mercury is 88 days. Not very long. It's very close and it's going around very fast. It spins on its axis 
once every 59 days, and you combine those two together and you get a solar day based on sunrise to sunrise of 176 Earth days. So Mercury is very close to this, this very hot star, and it's turning very, very slowly like a pig on a spit. And you can imagine that the side toward the sun gets fairly hot. 950 degrees Fahrenheit. And just to give you a feel for that, lead, like, like you're having a bullet or a sinker for fishing, lead melts at 621. The mercury metal in a thermometer will vaporize at 673. We're talking 950. 950 degrees on the day side. And the day lasts, what, about average, something on the order of three months. But while the day side is facing the sun and getting very hot, the night side is facing deep space, and it receives almost no energy from deep space. And the irony is, because Mercury is just a piece of rock, it doesn't have any atmosphere, it doesn't have any water, things that would uh, uh, even out the temperature, it gets very cold on the night side. 346 degrees below zero. At that temperature, our atmosphere would have long since turned into a liquid and then into ice. So it's, it's interesting. Mercury is one of the hottest places in the solar system. It's also one of the coldest, sitting right there next to the sun. Anybody want to sign up yet? <laughs> Let's go to the next planet out, Venus. Now it's looking better, isn't it? Venus has got clouds. Venus must have an atmosphere. But when you strip away the atmosphere with infrared and look at it in infrared as in the upper right picture, it looks much more sinister. And if you go down to the surface, it doesn't look much better. You see lava flows and all kinds of problems with Venus. Venus has an atmosphere that's 15 times the density of Earth's atmosphere. It's Virtually 100% carbon dioxide, about 97% to be exact, and it traps heat. Venus is a runaway greenhouse. And so although Mercury is a little hotter on the day side, Venus is 900 degrees Fahrenheit everywhere. Again, no, no liquid lead, no, no solid lead on, on Venus. No liquid mercury on Venus. Uh, those clouds that we saw, they're not water vapor clouds like here on Earth. They're clouds of sulfuric acid. That's battery acid, which will burn you if, if you get it on you. Uh, winds blow on Venus about 200 miles per hour. And remember, the atmosphere is 15 times denser, so you're talking about a tremendous amount of force in the winds. The Russians landed a, a robotic lander on Venus back in the 80s. Uh, Werner 13 landed successfully, took a few pictures, and died of heat stroke two hours later. So I, I would suggest to you that if a mechanical robotic lander can't survive Venus's environment, we might have some difficulty. Um, so let's skip Earth and let's go out to the next planet. One of great hope, Mercury, uh, uh, Mars. 
And you'll notice that Mars has uh, polar caps, just like Earth. It has an atmosphere. And back when telescopes were not quite so good as they are now, people noticed, noticed that they had seasonal changes on Mars. They had polar caps, and they thought Mars might be Earth-like. And some folks thought, some astronomers thought they saw canals on Mars. And if they're canals, then there must be canal builders. And so there was this general idea that there might be life on Mars. H.G. Um, Wells wrote a book, War of the Worlds. And it became one of the very first uh, programs on radio back in 1938. And when they put the, the program on, I suppose there were caveats to begin with, but they had music playing or some program going on, and they would interrupt it with an announcement. These creatures from the Red Planet have landed near Trenton, New Jersey. And then they would go, the music would play, and they'd interrupt it again. The creatures have taken over Paris, or they've taken over New York. And people panicked. There was a general public panic because people were conditioned to believe there was life on Mars. The interesting thing to me is that the general public weren't the only ones that thought there was life on Mars. So did the academic community. Science. Maybe not little green men, maybe not intelligent life, but at least microbial life. And so in the 1960s, we began to, to, to explore Mars. We've had a number of flybys. In the mid-70s, we had two landers. Since then, we've had numerous orbiters that have taken high-definition pictures of the whole surface. We've got detailed maps of the whole surface of Mars. We've placed four rovers on Mars at different locations on the globe. We've spent about 38 years on the surface of Mars. We've uh, probably explored on the order of 40 miles, and we've carried all kinds of instruments there. Instruments to look for life, among other things. What have we found? Well, here's a picture from the last rover, uh, Opportunity. A curiosity, I'm sorry. And this is what this scene would look like in Mars light, if you were standing on Mars. And then they corrected it so you can see what it looks like in Earth light. Mars is dusty. It has reddish dust. And it's very hazy everywhere. These are tracks left by the rover Opportunity as it traveled 15 to 20 miles to reach a crater, Victoria Crater. Um, and why is that not there? Huh. It studied Victoria Crater for about two years, looking at the rocks in the, in the edges of the crater. Uh, these are pictures taken from orbit by orbiters in high definition. And you'll notice that they're teardrop-shaped island, or what might have been islands here, where you have, if you had water flow, uh, and it's blocked by this crater here, or this one here, or whatever, you get this typical type of structure in the bottom of a river or, or whatever. It's, it's very common here on Earth. For years, people have known that the edges of craters on Mars are eroding. We see here, there's a one on the left that was taken first, and sometime later, this 
second one was taken of the very same same structure, same picture, but you'll notice there's a new uh, deposit over here on this side. It's changed. The crater wall is eroding. And so people hypothesize that there's probably subterranean water on Mars. The surface has marks of having had water on it. They're, they're telltale signs and structures. And perhaps there's water, subterranean water, that seeps out of the walls of craters and canyons. That's been thought for a very long time. You might have heard an announcement in the last month that they have found water on Mars. Um, when that came out, I noticed that uh, the, one of the people making the announcement was a, a, used to be a young man worked down the hall from me. So I emailed him and asked him to give me some information. He sent me a couple of papers. The press release makes it sound like that there's water on Mars, and now that we have water, we can go and make an outpost, and humans can go there and live, and, and there's all this, this energy coming up about Mars. Well, actually, it's not quite like that. The water that seeps out is in the form of a salty brine, kind of the kind of thing you would have in the Dead Sea. Very, very salty. It's, it has to be because salt <clears throat> lowers the freezing point, and it wouldn't be it would be ice if it didn't have a lot of salt in it. Not only that, but it only comes out in certain places during the warmest part of the Martian year. Comes and seeps out and runs down the walls for oops for a little ways. Right here, you see these dark streaks, and then when it begins to get a little colder, it all goes away. There are no lakes or rivers or oceans or whatever on Mars. May have been in the distant past, but not today. And the reason's very obvious. We've learned something from our 38 years on the planet. Mars is five, uh, one and a half times the distance from the sun that, that Earth is. It's half again as far from the sun as Earth. So it receives less energy. The, from, from the sun. And it's going to be cold. The temperature ranges on Mars from a high of around 21 down to a low pushing 200 degrees below zero. It's very cold. There are spots where it's a little warmer, but in general, you're never going to see water, liquid water, under these conditions. If there's any water, it's going to be ice. And we don't even find ice. And the reason is very simple. Martian atmosphere is one one-hundredth of the density of Earth's atmosphere. And I don't know if you've ever traveled out west, but if you go out west, there's no such thing as a three-minute egg. It takes a lot longer. Water boils at a lower temperature if you go to a lower pressure. At Mars, with a pressure of one one-hundredth, this is the pressure you would have to go to about 26 miles above the surface of the earth to reach this pressure. Nothing lives at 26 miles. Water at that pressure would simply immediately evaporate. Or if it changed to ice, it would then sublime, go straight from a solid to a gas. Mars, it doesn't have the capability to have water, not liquid water, which is 
one of the primary requirements to have life. So, so far as we know, there's no water on Mars. We have found no, not one single microbe, not a blade of grass, nothing in 38 years. The people that were hopeful have been reduced from looking enthusiastically for life to getting excited because maybe we found some salty brine. So let's go to the next planet out. Jupiter is about five times further from the sun than Earth, and it's a monster. You could put 1,300 Earths in the volume of Jupiter. It's huge. A day on Earth is 24 hours. A day on Jupiter is a little less than 10 hours. So you have this huge, monstrous planet spinning at a high rate, and it causes it to squish out in the, at the equator and to pull down at the, pro, at the poles. It becomes an oblate spheroid. But you'll notice that Jupiter is a gas giant. It's, it's, it's all gas. It's primarily hydrogen. Jupiter has no surface to stand on. But if you could stand on the surface at the cloud tops, because it's so big and so monstrous, it has a lot of gravitational pull. And so if, if you could take a young lady, weighed 100 pounds, and if she could stand on the cloud tops, she would no longer weigh 100 pounds like she would here on Earth. She'd weigh 265 pounds. She could play, you know, defensive lineman for Ohio State. <laughs> the temperature of the cloud tops is very cold, 171 below zero. But as you go down and you go through this tremendous gravitational pull and the gas is compressed and compressed, it gets very hot. Incredible, 54,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Jupiter is an interesting planet. It, it emits more energy than it receives from the sun. And some people think that Jupiter was almost a star. It just wasn't quite large enough and the thermonuclear reaction did not get ignited. So Jupiter is not a good place for life. And by the way, you'll notice these bands on Jupiter. If you ever look at Jupiter through a telescope, you'll see bands or pictures. What those are is cloud bands. And because it's spinning so fast and it's so big and it's got all this gravity, you have upwellings and downdrafts and, and you have these bands that rotate not only at different speeds but at different directions. And so if you look at it over time, it does something like this. Now notice this, this place right here, the giant red spot. That is a huge vortice, or if you wish, a, a hurricane. It's been there for over 300 years. As long as we've been observing Jupiter, that spot has been there in, in one form or the other. If you look at it up close, you can see the tremendous turbulence in the, in the upper cloud layers of Jupiter. And this hurricane is monstrous. Been there for 300 and something years, and it's large enough that it could swallow up the Earth and, and uh, Mars at the same time, in one gulp. So, so much for Jupiter. Look at a couple of moons of Jupiter. This is Io. It's the moon that's closest to Jupiter. It's one of the Galilean moons that you can see with a good pair of binoculars. 
This picture was taken by Voyager 1 a number of years ago when it went by. And it just so happened when it snapped the picture, something was going on right here. That's a volcanic eruption. People were very excited because they thought everything else in the, except Earth was dead in the solar system. And here you have an active body. It turns out that what's being erupted there are sulfur compounds, primarily sulfur dioxide, which is uh, what you, comes off of rotten eggs. We now know that there are some 400 volcanic vents on, on Io. And the question is, how can you have a volcano on such a small body as this? It's about the same size as our moon. Well, it turns out that Io is so close to this massive planet, and it's going in a little bit of elliptical orbit, not quite circular, but stretched out a little bit. And so at times it's further away, and sometimes it's closer. When it comes closer, the tidal force of the gravitational pull elongates it. And as it goes back out, it relaxes back into a sphere. So you have this flexing that goes on every orbit. And the flexing creates heat internally, which eventually comes out in, in volcanic eruptions. This is a, another Jovian moon, Europa, that people are very excited about today. You notice that the surface of Europa looks different. Uh, you don't see any big uh, craters in the surface of Europa. If you go down near the surface, it looks like this. And you can see a few very small craters. Uh, there's one right there, but no big ones. It turns out that the surface of Europa is water ice. And people have hypothesized that the reason you don't have big craters is because there's an ocean underneath the ice. And when a, a meteoroid comes in and crashes through the ice, the water simply fills back in and refreezes, and so you have a smooth surface. In the past year, the Hubble telescope has detected vents of water vapor coming off of Europa. And so there's great excitement now. We want to go there and look for life once again because we have water, and now all we need are the proper elements and some energy, and we can have life. Uh, Europe, uh, European Space Agency and NASA are supposed to send a mission there around 2025, so it will be interesting to see what they find. Let's go to Saturn, next planet out. Saturn's about 10 times further than this, from the Sun than Earth, but it's basically a carbon copy of Jupiter. Won't go into it. It's a hydrogen, big, big uh, giant gas ball. Uh, has all the problems for life that Jupiter does. No water, no solid surface, no oxygen. But it has beautiful rings of water ice that uh, you're familiar with. Looks a lot like an LP record, doesn't it? Before we leave Saturn, though, I want to visit its largest moon, Titan. Titan is fuzzy looking. That's because it has an atmosphere. And until a few years ago, no one had ever seen the surface of Titan because it's covered always with a layer of clouds. It was a total mystery. A few years ago, NASA sent the Cassini mission to study the rings of Saturn, but it also carried along a probe called the Huygens probe. And the Huygens probe was dropped off at Titan, and it came down on parachutes through this atmosphere, and it took pictures as it was coming down. And the one that got people excited is this one. You can see here what appear to be 
rivers, highlands being drained by rivers into a basin, a sea. And it looks earth-like. But when they got to the surface and the probe landed and began to take pictures, this is interesting. This is a color picture taken from one of the outer planets, a moon of an outer planet some four billion miles away. It's amazing. But look what the measurements tell you. Temperature in the range of 290 degrees below zero. Again, our atmosphere would be ice at this temperature. The atmosphere has a lot of methane. It's basically a, uh, a heavy, dense smog. There is rain on Titan, and there are rivers, and there are lakes. But the rain and the rivers or lakes are liquid methane or liquid ethane. And so what we've learned here is that appearances can be deceiving. It can look an awful lot like Earth-like and be nothing at all like Earth. When they first saw this, people were excited because Titan is full of hydrocarbons, all kinds of hydrocarbons must be life. But it's so cold and it's barren and they've given up looking for life on Titan. Uh, we recently had the New Horizons mission uh, flew by Pluto. Until this year, all Pluto was was a fuzzy little round circle in the sky, even with the Hubble telescope. It's so incredibly far away. But now we have close-ups of Pluto. Pluto has been demoted. It's no longer a planet. Uh, it's lost its planetary status because it doesn't have the right kind of orbit, and it's only a little bit bigger than our moon. But it is a very cold place. It's, uh, it's about 49 or 50 times further from the sun than the Earth is. Receives very little heat from the sun the sun would appear as a very bright star on Pluto. What you see here is frozen surfaces of, of uh, nitrogen, helium, and other gases. And then in the highlands, you see very, very strange formations. Nobody has a clue what that is yet. But I don't think Pluto's a place where anybody would really want to go. It's about 300 degrees below zero. Pluto is emitting helium gas at about 100,000 tons an hour, which creates a transient atmosphere around it. It's kind of interesting. It was one of the surprises. Nothing on Pluto that would support life. So we come back and we ask the question, is Earth common or is it unique? And I want to remind you just a little of, about earth. Genesis says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It sounds a little bit like that picture of Pluto, doesn't it? Barren, cold, and dark. You ever wonder what the Spirit of the Lord was doing when it was hovering over the waters? Let's look at that a little bit. We know the result. God said, let there be land, and there was land and oceans and atmosphere and clouds and creatures and plants. And then he said, let us make man in our image. And he went on to say, be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. 
And I would suggest to you that that is the only command from God that mankind's ever taken to heart. But I want to ask the question, how is earth so different? And it's a little different from asking why. The why question can be answered quite easily. God made it that way. But that answer doesn't help young people when they go off to college and they're confronted. So I want to look at the how question a little bit. Let's look at what's required for us to be sitting here today having this discussion. First of all, we have to be in the right place in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which is this huge conglomerate of stars, approximately 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And I want to look at the center here. It's a huge crush of stars and black holes, uh, all kinds of, it's, it's unimaginable. The, the, you know, you, we've talked about I.O. being squished and stretched by the gravitational tidal forces. Tidal forces here would literally rip planets apart. The radiation intensity would fry us like bacon. We couldn't live in the center of a galaxy, but that's not where we are. Just so happens that we are about two-thirds of the way out in the Milky Way galaxy, and we're not even in one of the arms. We're in between two of the arms. Now, it's interesting. If we were in the arms, when we have that uh, uh, scripture in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, we wouldn't know that if we, we existed inside one of these arms because there would be clouds and bright stars all around us. And we wouldn't see the heavens. But we're not in the arms. We're in between two of the arms. And when we look up or down, we see out into the universe. If we look in this way, we see the Milky Way galaxy streaked across the sky. Location makes a difference. It also makes a difference in our solar system. It turns out that around a star, you have to be at the right distance from the star in order to have the possibility of having wood on the surface of a planet. It's called the water zone, or some people call it the Goldilocks zone, because if you're, if you're too close inside of this gray area, your planet's too hot, and all of the water will evaporate. If you're outside of this zone, you're too cold and all the water will freeze to solid ice. You have to have liquid water for, for life. And so here is the orbit of Earth right in this band, about 5% from the inside. And it turns out that if the sun were to brighten just 10%, it would heat up and it push this zone out a little further in effect, and we would be too close. And if we stayed like this with the sun 10% hotter, eventually our oceans would evaporate. So it turns out, of course, that the most important effect on our climate is the sun, not carbon dioxide, which globally is about three one-hundredths of a percent of our atmosphere. Not saying that we shouldn't do something about carbon emissions, but we don't need to panic. Let's look at the importance of size. Turns out Earth is the right size. If you look at the moon, you can see that it has no atmosphere. It has no oceans. It's sterile. 
but it rotates around the earth, which is in this favored zone, so the moon must also be in that favored zone. Why doesn't the moon have oceans? Well, it's very simple. The moon's too small. It doesn't have a strong enough gravitational pull to hold vapors down to its surface like earth does. And so if it ever had an atmosphere, it would simply drift off into space. If it ever had oceans, they would simply evaporate and drift off into space. And so we have a very desolate moon, even though it's in the right place. So earth has to be the right size. We're not so, so monstrous that we're crushed by the gravity like we would be on Jupiter, but we have enough gravity to hold our atmosphere and our water to the surface. One other thing that's interesting about size, this is a solar eclipse. And it's almost as if God has placed us at the 50-yard line to have a front row seat of the events of nature. We're in the right place in the galaxy to be able to see the universe. It turns out that you have to be exactly the right size in the distance to see a solar eclipse. Because we see a solar eclipse, we can see the corona, that, that halo around the sun, and that tells us what's going on in the sun. Something we wouldn't know if we weren't seeing a solar eclipse. Not only that, but Einstein's theory of relativity says that gravity runs in circles. And we've validated that because we can see that happen during a solar eclipse. We're viewing a lot because of solar eclipses. We're in the front row seat. What's necessary for a solar eclipse? Well, it turns out that in order to do that, the moon has to be exactly between Earth and the sun, and it casts a shadow on the Earth, and that's where you see the eclipse. The sun and the moon must be exactly the same apparent size. Now, the sun is 400 times larger in diameter than the moon, but it just so happens that it's exactly 400 times further away. And people have studied this, and there are literally dozens of moons in our solar system. Uh, having only one moon is the exception rather than the, the rule. And yet, there's nowhere else you could go, no other planet, would you ever see a solar eclipse. It's unique to Earth. The moon, one other thing that happens, because it doesn't have an atmosphere, it's all beat up. I'm sure you've noticed that. Not so on Earth. And the reason is because of our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is a meteoritic shield. You can see our atmosphere up to an altitude of about 60 miles. That's called the limb of the atmosphere. Actually extends up thousands of miles. Meteors begin to burn up at about 100 miles altitude. And you might say, okay, is that important? Big meteorites are, are very, very rare meteoroids. One went through uh, above Russia a few years ago, but very rare. But the distribution of meteors is such that you have very few big ones, but as you get smaller, the number of them goes up exponentially. So when you get to grain-sized meteors, it's like a steady rain. And what I want you to realize is that a meteor that has the mass of three grains of rice if we had no atmosphere, which after it falls down through our gravitational well and accelerates to 25,000 miles per hour, it would hit the surface of the earth with the same energy as a 
140 grain bullet fired out of a 30-06 rifle. Imagine walking outside with a steady drizzle of that going on. 10,000 metric tons of dust settle down on the earth each day, the result of burned up meteorites. Very important shield. The sun is the mother of all nuclear reactions. It puts out all of the bad stuff that a, a, an atomic bomb does. And we all know about fallout. Radiation will kill you. How is it that we're still here talking? Well, it turns out Earth has a magnetic field. And you probably know that because I'm sure you've all used a compass. But it's more important than that. It turns out that a magnetic field reacts with charged particles. It forms a force. If a charged particle tries to flow across a magnetic field, a force is set up between the field and the particle. That's what makes an electric motor work. You're forcing particles, charged particles, electrons through a wire. That creates a force on the particles which are in the wire, so it pushes the wire, turns the armature, and you have a motor. The same kind of reaction occurs in space because of the Earth's magnetic field. Energetic charged particles, billions and billions of electron volts, come in and would absolutely fry you if you're exposed to them. But they can't get across the Earth's magnetic field. They interact with it, they crush it down on the sun side, they stretch it out on the night side. And if you could see this, we call it the magnetosphere, it would look something like this. And you can see there's a bow shock and these these energetic particles are deflected around the Earth so they don't strike us. Here's the Van Allen belts here. And there's only two places where these energetic particles can come down to the surface. And that's at these places here over the north and south pole called polar cusp, little funnel shapes here. And there, the particles don't have to cross the fields because that's where the magnetic field comes down to the pole. And so these particles come screaming down through there and they strike the neutral atmosphere and they excite the neutral atoms in our atmosphere and call them, cause them to do something we call fluorescence, that they emit light. This is what it looks like from the space shuttle. You can see here the shuttle, there's its tail fin. And here are these streamers caused by these energetic particles coming down and striking our atmosphere. Of course, below, you recognize that as the Aurora Borealis. You've all heard of the ozone layer, the big flap about it a few years ago. Um, ozone is made up as a molecule made up of three atoms of oxygen, O3. The oxygen that we breathe here in the air is O2, diatomic oxygen. They're quite different chemically. Ozone is poisonous to breathe, but it has a unique capability to absorb ultraviolet radiation. And so it forms a radiation shield for us in the ultraviolet. There are three bands of ultraviolet, uh, A, B, and C. A being the lowest energy and the le least dangerous. C being the most energetic and the most dangerous. And so what we have here is the this gold curve represents the density of ozone. This is altitude, and you can see it peaks out here at about 20 or 30 kilometers altitude in this case. These are the bands of ultraviolet. The width of these ribbons represents the intensity of the, of the radiation coming down. And as it comes down through the ozone layer, you can see that it decreases in width or intensity. So for UVA, the least energetic, least dangerous, about half of it's gone when it gets to the surface of the Earth. 
UVB is more energetic, more dangerous, and almost all of it is absorbed when it gets to the surface of the earth. A little bit left, that's why your good sunglasses have UV, uh, UVB filtering. But UVC, the most energetic, would kill you, is totally absorbed before it gets to the surface of the earth. So this ozone filter that we have selectively filters out what's most deadly and allows to come through that part that doesn't harm us particularly. And I will submit to you, if you were an engineer and you were assigned the job of designing an ozone, an ultraviolet filter for Earth, you could not do a more efficient job than this. Earth has water, temperate water oceans. You find this nowhere else in our solar system. And I, I don't have time to go into that, so I'll, I'll finish up. The most striking result of some 45, almost 50 years now of exploration of the solar system and, and investigation is that Earth is very, very different. As you would expect from reading Genesis 1. But no matter what your belief or what your worldview, it's obvious that something has gone on here that went on nowhere else in our solar system and as far as we know in the universe. <clears throat> Warner Von Braun, and I found a lot of younger people don't know who he was, so I'll go through it again. He was a German scientist. He, he developed the V-1 and V-2 rockets in World War II. After the war, he came to the United States. And his lifelong dream was to explore space. And so he and his team came and they developed rockets, first for the Army, ICBMs, and then NASA was formed around Werner von Braun and his team. Werner von Braun is the reason we were able to put Neil Armstrong on the moon. He's a great scientist, a great man, a great motivator, a great organizer, an incredible person. Look at what he says. One cannot be exposed to the law and order of the universe without concluding there must be a divine intent behind it all. Romans, Paul said the same thing, basically. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul wrote this to men in the first century before invention of the telescope. What would he say to us today? What would he say about our excuse? The psalmist says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? I'm sure you've all read that. I want to show you one more picture, and we'll be through. One of my favorite pictures. may not be very impressive to you. But 13 years after Voyager 1 was launched, 13 years later, it passed beyond the orbit of Pluto. And it was commanded to turn and face back toward the sun and take a picture. And that picture right there, that little dot, a pale blue dot, that's us, from four billion miles away. 
And I indeed think, what is earth that you're mindful of? It's one little submicroscopic speck among billions and billions of specks. And you think about it. Every king that has ever sat, every general that's ever commanded his army, every battle that's been fought, every war that's been won, every game that's been played, every national championship that's been won. In fact, all of human history, every hope that's been hoped, every fear that's been feared, occurred on that little single dot. I don't know about you, but that affects me. It, it kind of destroys my geocentric view of everything. And so the wonder to me is not so much that there could be a Creator, but that such a Creator would come to this little speck because He loves me and you. And yet, that's the message of John 3.16, isn't it? That God so loved the world, mankind, that He sent His one and only Son as a sacrifice that we might have life. That is the most incredible thing to ever comprehend to me. Thank you.